Welcome to the Newport Street Gallery in Vauxhall, with the trains whizzing to and fro behind me. I'm here to introduce the RIBA Journal's new series of podcasts, Reba J Meets, in which we meet and talk with leading architects about themselves, about their work, about their clients, and about architecture more generally. From here, we're going to proceed to the RIBA, where, waiting for me, is Peter Sinjin of Cruiser Sinjin, who's going to talk to me about the development of his acclaimed practice. We're in a council chamber here, surrounded by leather bonquettes and maple cladding on the walls here. Now, Peter, welcome to our podcast. This is really sort of a way of catching up with what you and the practice are doing, because if we look at nature of your work now. I think a lot of people, like me actually, would think these are people who are, in a sense, always typecast into art galleries. We all remember the famous competition win for Walsall, Gozian, obviously the Newport Street Gallery, Shortinian Hurst and so forth. But if you look at the, the work you're doing now, I see the Swiss Lions Ice Hockey Arena. I see a lot of housing projects in Hamburg, in Freiburg, in Munich. A complete master plan, including a football stadium for Zurich, and all this is quite recent stuff. So I suppose one of the things I'd like to ask is, firstly, going back to the beginning, 1990, how did you and Adam Caruso meet? We met uh, working at Arab Associates. Adam and I were young architects in the office, and at that time, Arab Associates was changing the nature of its kind of architecture it was making, and Adam and I were very interested in the early work of Philip Dowson and Fogger, Peter Fogger, and it was a kind of topic of conversation, Adam and myself. We were kind of critical of the practice we were working and looking at the heritage of the practice, and uh, it became a kind of way of us talking, in a way, expressing our frustrations about the practice we were working in and thinking that maybe we could do it better. So what was the stimulus to actually sort of make that leap and set up your practice? Well, we also had previously both worked for Florian Bagel at different times. It was another connection between us and we were very, as a result, interested in the idea of making a practice that was based on teaching as well as, as building a theoretical practice that we felt would be an important contribution to. We were, we were idealists. Of course. We just wanted to do it and eventually we just said to ourselves, we're not going to be able to do this unless we start at a fairly young age. It doesn't matter that we have no work. We just have to start and we'll make it happen. We're very determined. And I think my interest, what kind of age were you then? In our late 20s. Late 20s. That is young to start off a practice, I have to say. Yes. Well, I think you have your best ideas when you're young. <laughs> and if you wait too long, if you wait until you have enough work to start a practice, you might have lost those important five or ten years in your early 30s when I think you really, and your late 20s when you really have your first thoughts about what kind of architecture you want to make. So as an independent practice, what was your first, first significant job? As with many practices, our first jobs were for relatives. We did a barn conversion in the Isle of Wight for my wife's sister, and then our first new building was a little house in Lincolnshire for my wife's aunt. There were small projects, very small, I think the budget for the house was like plus 5,000 for the garage, but we spent a lot of time on them. And then came Walsall, the competition win for the new art gallery in Walsall, which is, you know, we would say it was your breakout project. By that time, I guess you'd have been 
been practiced for what, about five, six years, something like that? It was five years. Yeah. When we, were, when we started our practice, we had a, a very small number of small projects, which we did slowly. We were teaching, which gave us a kind of minimal income, but we were mainly doing competitions, five or six competitions a year for, for those five years until we eventually won a competition. And then you had to scale up, presumably. Because, you know, although it's not sort of the, the world's largest building for, uh, for a small practice, it's, it's a big thing to do. And, of course, for anybody who doesn't know the New York Gallery in Warsaw, it's a, it's a complete uh, considered work of art in itself, down to every tiny detail. Well, it was a very special opportunity in, in a certain luck involved in winning that particular competition because it got built straight away. And when we won the competition, we, we didn't have any assistance, but we built a project three people in the office and decided to dedicate about three or four years just to work on that project so we worked on it solely to keep the office small and it was a learning process for us too so we kept the office very small. As a matter of interest, have you been back there much since? I go there occasionally, yes, not frequently. They still have interesting exhibitions and they have a very nice collection. So yes, I do go back. The Garment Ryan Collection, and of course that was also part of a small master plan for that area at the head of, of a canal arm, one of the Venice uh, yes. canal system. So it became a kind of little place in itself, a little sort of locust, didn't it? Yes, yes, it was um, one of those projects at the beginning of the lottery in the early 90s when there were extraordinary ambitions for building public buildings out in the regions especially, and it's special because it has this selection ambition would not be built today, so it was, a, it was an amazing opportunity for us. And this, something which happened there, which interestingly, from the development of your practice, which is that on the one hand, we've got a public art gallery, on the other hand, you had the Garment Ryan collection, and you were uh, endeavouring to combine aspects of domesticity, in other words, like, almost like the setting of, of rooms in a house, apart from that building, with a public facility. I'm interested in that, and in that, as it were, trying to produce a building which is which is saying more than one thing at a time. Yes, it was. It was about trying to make a building that had more complexity to it than a lot of contemporary architecture in its time. For me, it was about trying to imagine what the relevance of a public building should be in in a community like that. and the Germans, and Zurich seems to be your sort of city of uh, alternative city now. How did that happen? We've always had this continental outlook right from the beginning. We were looking at opportunities and competitions, projects that we could apply. 
apply for. There was the OGU system, there were competitions in Europe which we could apply for, and there was not enough of interest to do in Britain. And also, at that time, the beginning of our practice, there was some very interesting architecture emerging from Switzerland. The early work of Herzog in the Moron, Peter Merkley, Peter Sontor, it really is a culture in which architecture is really valued. We tried to make connections, we made friends with architects, and we started teaching in Switzerland, and eventually we managed to break into that professional culture. Most recently, I think, or maybe not most recently, but sort of one of the recent projects is the quite an extensive master plan um, for West Zurich, two mixed-use towers, uh, a football stadium, residential. So is that underway at the moment? It's a joint project with Swiss architects Paul, Roger Bonthauser, and it's just about to restart. There was a public referendum in the autumn when the citizens of Zurich said yes. Ah. So it is just about to start, yes. Not construction, but we're going to the next stage of making a planning application. Okay, and this is where Cruiser Sitgen designed a football stadium. With others, definitely. <laughs> we're part of a team, and each of us is working on different buildings within the plan. The plan was made together, and the stadium is mainly the work of pool architects who are who have a lot of experience designing stadiums. It does look a little different. It's more in your linear manner rather than the kind of uh, the donut shape or the ellipse, which is more common. But you're also doing the Swiss Lions ice hockey arena. Suddenly you're, suddenly you're big sports guys. Yes, well, that's what it's like in Switzerland. It's not like in the UK where you are pigeonholed as having certain specialisms. They hold competitions, they invite architects, and you don't have to have the experience beforehand to participate in that architectural competition. Well, that's very interesting. So this whole business of you have to have completed 12 schools in order to do a school, which is the catch-22 we face in this country, just doesn't apply that. Yes, it's so much. Much. very restricting on everyone and also on the design of schools. So in Switzerland, we entered a competition for an ice hockey stadium. It helped that Adam, who was born in Montreal, was a good... Uh, is to be a good <laughs> hockey player, so he knew something about hockey, and other people in our office had some bit of stadium experience. Yes, that's the way it is. No, it's not like Frank Geary, he's got his own team or anything. No, no, not Why are 
you mentioned teaching there and uh, at the architecture schools and the fact that when you set up as a practice, it was in a sense almost a pedagogical practice, the idea of uh, combining the two. Have you stuck with that? Do you both still teach? Yes, we do. Adam is Professor of Construction at ETH and is teaching at the university a day a week. And I'm a Professor of Architecture at London Met. Um, I teach a day a week too. So we've always, we've always taught. It's an important part of our way of being architects. When your practice gets bigger, I suppose it's about building a team of people around you who take on many of the responsibilities that you had when you were a younger architect. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't fit these things in. It's a question of priorities. And for us, teaching is a very important part of thinking about what we want to do. Staying young by talking to young architects and contributing to a conversation about architecture. Now, a further part of your practice has come through, which has been very interesting to me, is you put down a marker at one point. You said, we do not agree with the notion that modernism was a tabula rasa thing, that everything stopped and then started again after the First World War, and that there is indeed a continuum. You uh, aligned yourself at one point with arts and crafts architects such as Philip Webb. And you know, this makes perfect sense to everybody, I would have thought, but it does sometimes need to be stated. And tied in with that is the what you might call, or some call, the new ornamentalism, the rediscovery of the idea, I'm thinking, I suppose, of the, uh, the Bethnal Green Museum of Childhood with your new frontage pavilion there in, as it were, appropriately Victorian, so to speak, uh, ornamental stonework. What's your feeling now about architectural history and modernism? I think modernism was a very important moment and it was absolutely necessary to that overturning of traditions. But I suppose now one feels as if the imperatives that were stated then are not so relevant now and that one can almost look at that period of architecture as a history of its own. I don't think we could be marked down as architects who are only interested in ornament or whose buildings are always referring to architectural history. I think sometimes our projects are very abstract and other, at other times they're very literal. I'm thinking of your uh, St. Jacob Foundation, for instance, with its imprints of shells, scallop shells. Scallop shells, yes. It's a, that's, Coquille Saint-Jacques. That's a, a building we just finished, and it's basically a, a light industrial building for a very interesting charity who provide work for disabled people, particularly people with Down syndrome in the centre of Zurich. They uh, repair uh, electronic goods. They have a, a bakery and a cafe that they run. It's a kind of very special building in the community of the city, which we sort of wanted to imprint with its identity by putting the emblem of St. Jacob the scallop shell across the facade. This is a recurred in your buildings, one remembers the, uh, the lace imprint in the Nottingham Contemporary Art Gallery, of course, Nottingham being a great lace-making city. Would you say that it's the locator, so to speak? I think it's doing that, but I think um, we're interested in making an architecture that communicates, so it creates an atmosphere and a mood. Part of the way of doing that is to make buildings that react specifically to their context whether it's their physical context or their cultural context. So sometimes referring to buildings that are 
what's relevant to their context is, is kind of part of that conversation. So it's, it's about trying to make connection, trying to make things that affect people, that people recognize that you use in a certain way to create an atmosphere. So I want to ask you a question about the clients that you work with, which are obviously many and varied. In the world of art galleries, for instance, on the one hand, you have the world of uh, publicly funded, committee-led, trustees, and so forth. And then there's private art galleries, the likes of Gagosian, and of course, in the uh, Newport Street Gallery, Damien Hurst. I was always interested in the relationship between you and Damien Hurst, and, and how that worked, as you, very careful individuals, architects, very precise in your manner, and so forth, and then Damien Hurst, who needs no description from me. How did that client architect relationship work. It wasn't very different from other client relationships. We met uh, regularly and presented the work and I think he is someone who has had talented, very precise people around him to realise his ideas. I think we were sort of part of that group of people and the conversations with him were very interesting and he was an unusual client for many reasons but partly because he understood things very quickly and also participated. He had ideas and pushed us and was critical of things, so it was, it was good. But he's a very precise and demanding person, and that's the kind of client we can work with. I would have thought that would be a part of the course in the, in the kind of field that, uh, that you work in. But also, do you think, I, I always think that Newport Street Gallery is an underappreciated public resource or an active philanthropy, it seems to me. Here we have this free gallery extraordinary exhibitions, largely drawn from the same collection. And just anybody can just go there at any, any time. Is, is that an extraordinary thing to happen in, in, in the 21st century? It is extraordinary. And as far as I know, all the work is from his collection and to borrow things. Yeah. So if you've been to the range of shows they have there, it gives you some idea of the extraordinary depth of his collection. He's just someone who is absolutely passionate about art and an incredible collector, a very serious collector. And everyone to see it. Now, I'm aware that in the course of this conversation, it might appear like a triumphalist progress from sort of starting practice, winning competition for Walsall, proceeding on to everything from Damien Hurst galleries to uh, football stadiums and housing all over the place. No practice is like that. There's always something where you think, if only I hadn't done that, or wouldn't it have been great if such and such hadn't gone wrong, or whatever. Is there any such moment, or would you care to divulge any such moment? What I do regret is the way in which we have been pigeonholed as a certain kind of architect in Britain. Of course, it's been a wonderful opportunity, and we're very lucky to do public buildings, to do museums and galleries. It does mean that one hasn't been able to develop a kind of portfolio that allows us to participate in other things that are interesting in Britain, and I think particularly in housing in Britain, so, because there's lots of housing being built in. Well, I was going to go on to well indeed, I was going to go on to ask I suppose as a, as a follow up to that is there a building typology which you wish you were doing uh, is that it? Is it actually getting to grips with housing? I think the question of quality of housing in addition to the quantity in London is a, is a really interesting question. Specifically London? Well it's, it's where I feel, I feel it's my home and I feel, I feel very strongly transformation of the city over the last five or ten years, which is obviously continuing and how much is changing. And so, what's the problem from your point of view? Obviously, you're talking about you know, the problem of typecasting, which is more of a British problem than it is in many other countries. Is it that you would not be considered, you reckon, for, 
offered social housing? Would people not even sort of consider knocking on your door, do you think? We're architects who like to build well, and the whole contractual arrangement in Britain, the way in which architects are used, the way in which developers often use good architects, but then use executive architects to realise projects or, or go down the design and build process doesn't suit the way in which we work. We think it's very important to retain control over the quality of the things you make. So in other words, the, so the contractual system kind of works against you and architects like you, doesn't it? I think it, it doubly does, uh, in addition to the fact that one, one is pigeonholed as a different kind of architect. And I would really like to participate in that conversation trying various ways of kind of making partnerships, following up friendships with architects I like who, who are doing housing and trying to participate in that. I think it's a very important question in London. Well, I hope you succeed in that. Also, uh, London needs it, really. I've only got one final question to make here, and it's really just a kind of general thing about partly its status, partly it, it's what's establishment, what isn't. But, you know, you and Adam have recently both been wearing RAs, which is so you are now sort of well on academicians. What does that mean to you, or what does being an RA mean these days to an architect? Does that mean you've arrived, you've had a lifetime achievement goal, or, or what, would it, what, what would it be? Well, it, it is something that is where you are elected by the other academicians, and there's some very good academicians, so that's a nice feeling, it's, it's recognition. Of course that's nice, and it definitely does have an, an air of the establishment about it, which both Adam and I are a bit wary of. It's always been something in which we've kind of measured our distance from, from the establishment, but, uh, but it's nice to feel that you are accepted for the work you've done. But also, is the, is the, the twofold architect artist thing interesting to you? The fact that you know, you're rubbing shoulders with artists at the Royal Academy, and, and it's always been like that. So, in turn, you know. Yes, there are interesting conversations to be had with your colleagues, and it's very much, yes, it's a nice thing to encourage those connections between art and architecture, which we've always been interested in, and there are plenty of artists that we know who we can talk to at the Royal Academy, and I think it's, it's real value is in, in how you participate in it, how you contribute to their exhibition program, their lecture program, which is more than almost any other institution, good at projecting the image of architecture to the public. I think it's, it's an important thing that one can always do better. Well, I said it was a final question, but a final, final one. We've talked only really about the, um, the, the size of your practice and where it is. Obviously, you've always talked, had an international outlook. We know that London in particular is a most amazing international melting pot for architecture because of the schools and because of the practice and so forth. When it comes to diversity of people in the practice, where they come from, who they are and so forth, how, what is the makeup, what is the constitution of the people that you work with in your firm? Where they come from, there are lots of mixed young people in our office and they come a lot from connections that Adam and I have in teaching from our students come into the office and they might, they might stay for a few years and move on. We have a lot of people in our office who work for us for five years and have started their practices because they, want, they feel in a way connected to the way in which we have practiced. Um, so we have a lot of Europeans, I would say, Swiss, German, 
and um, with younger architects, is the gender balance now tilting upwards? I wondered if you were going to ask that. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. It varies a lot with people. Right? Uh, I believe, I haven't checked today, but I think we're about balanced. We have plenty of women in our office. Yes, I think that's very important. It's one of the most important questions in the world today, the gender equality. So, yes, we believe in that. Has it changed, by the way? I mean, obviously, back in 1990 to today, if you look at the raw figures, the number of women, for instance, going through the schools, it's moved into a kind of majority, certain places like the AA and the Bond and so forth, in the early 2000s, I suppose. But then comes a matter of making it through the practice and then sort of staying in practice. In terms of increasing, it's certainly true that over the last 10 years, there's a lot more women in our office. Yeah. Um, associates and managers, and there are now in our office too, and that will take time. Well, Peter St. John, thanks very much for talking to me this morning. You're getting slightly surreal surroundings of the Arlington Council Chamber, and thank you very much. Thanks, you. It's been nice.